Open your Bibles to Psalm 54. Psalm 54, page 604, if you're using a Bible provided, there's one under a chair in the row in front of you. Open it up to page 604 and follow along. Do you have any enemies? Now, if you do, you probably don't have to think too long about it. If you're sitting there going, I am trying to think who are my enemies, you probably don't have any. And, and I would say, I always kind of think that everybody's mostly like me, uh, sometimes worse, sometimes better, but mostly like me. And I, and I was thinking about that this week. Well, do I have any enemies? And, and I, I can't really think of too many people. I, I can't really think of any enemies. And then, so the question that strikes me from this psalm is, why not? If we don't have any enemies, why don't we have any enemies? You say, well, we shouldn't have any enemies. We should be really nice people and kind and loving. And if we're the kind of Christians we should be, then people will always love us and want to be around us. We won't have any enemies if we're good Christians. And, and uh, I think then you read the Psalms and you wonder, well, how does David a good Christian? <laughs> and how are the people of God good people? Not that they always were or mostly were, but and then you read the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, and you read that, and you say, well, I wonder what kind of bad Christians those guys were. They were always having people angry with them or upset with them. So my question is, is if we don't have any enemies, why not? Is there anyone who seeks to ruin you? I could put a question mark there, or then add this, the biblical idea of because of Christ. Is there anyone who's angry with you because of Christ? Is there anyone angry with you because you are such a good Christian, because you have um, stepped on their toes, so to speak, if I could put that in a very kind way. And so we need to think about that. Enemies, why do we have them? Why wouldn't we have them? Why should we have them? And then as we think about also in this psalm, we need to understand the very practical nature of prayer. This psalm teaches us how to pray. In light of enemies, how do you pray? So that's kind of the idea of, of this, the whole psalm. And if we don't have enemies, then it's a little bit of a challenge for us, and so we need to maybe apply some of the principles out more broadly in the idea of prayer. Prayer is central to the life of a Christian, and the Bible is constantly teaching us how and why to pray. Have you noticed that? It's like throughout the scriptures, all, throughout, all the way, God is teaching us to cry out to him, to trust in him, to, to bring our needs to him. It's Old Testament, it's New Testament, because prayer is central and vital to the life of a Christian. The Bible doesn't go very far without reminding us of that. And here's another reminder in Psalm 54. So before we dig into the scripture, let's pray together. Father, we need your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and soften us to receive. Lord, just teach us, teach your people. They're your people, they're the sheep of your pasture, they're the people that you have redeemed by your son's blood on the cross of Calvary, and so, Lord, you are more interested than I am in their spiritual growth and their sanctification, so, Lord, do a sanctifying work, do a saving work. If there's anyone here who is not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, do this for your name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Psalm 54, follow along as I read. To the choir master, with stringed instruments, a masculine of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. 
For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies, and your faithfulness put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. This is God's divine, gracious revelation to us. May we listen to it this morning. The idea in this psalm, the big idea that I'm pulling out of this is that God is my sustainer. God is my sustainer. That's the, the title of the sermon. So we put, go through the psalms, we just put the theme in the title so we don't have to worry about missing that. God is my sustainer. In this psalm, we're told right from the beginning, the inspired notes of the song, that this is a song that is a teaching song. It's a masculine. It's a psalm for corporate worship given to the choir master. So this is a song for Christians to sing in corporate worship. And yet there's another reference, we haven't seen this one recently, with stringed instruments. So we get an idea of uh, the drums are supposed to drop out on this one. And uh, the percussion instruments like the piano, they have to drop out. We're just going to use strings on this one. And I'm not sure the reason behind that. We don't have any more information than that. But this is a stringed instrument. So this is, this is a guitar song. And that's why guitars are biblical because it says in the Bible with stringed instruments. <laughs> not sure about the electric guitar. We can argue about that later. But uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Anyway, enough about that. Don't, don't follow that rabbit. Don't go there. So this is a guitar song. This is a song for stringed instruments. And then we also are given, by God's grace, the setting of the psalm. And the setting here is very specific. When the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? And so if you want to find this historical background for this song, it's found in 1 Samuel 23. Have you ever read, like, hymn stories where you get the background for the reason that certain hymns or certain Christian songs are written? Have you, are you interested in that kind of history? Does it help you think through what, the, what was going on in the songwriter's life when they wrote that. So Psalm, uh, 1 Samuel 23 is, is, is the, the setting. Now the Ziphites, they betray David in Psalm, 1 Samuel, I'm sorry, 1 Samuel 23. And they also betray David in 1 Samuel 26. But when you look at the, the specific details of this psalm, they fit best with the first betrayal in 1 Samuel 23. Now, the setting of the Ziphites and their betrayal is the fact that King Saul has been seeking to kill David for some time now. If we remember back in Psalm 52, we saw Doeg, the Edomite, who had, who had, told, uh, who had tattled and, and lied about Ahimelech, and then the priests are killed, and, and Saul's going after David. So we've, we saw some of that background in Psalm 52, now again in Psalm 54. Saul, King Saul, the king of Israel, has been seeking to kill David. And David is now hiding out in the wilderness of Ziph, which is why the Ziphites can tell King Saul where he is. What's interesting is that while he's hiding there, King Saul's son, Jonathan, comes and strengthens his hand in God by saying to David, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. So after Jonathan went home, the Ziphites went and told Saul where David was hiding out. They even give the very hill he was hiding on. They know exactly where he is. They're very specific. 
And they promised that if King Saul were to come, they would work with King Saul and turn him over to the king. Now, what makes this betrayal so heinous is that these men are of the same tribe of Judah. These are men of David's own tribe. So this is a somewhat of a extended family betrayal, so to speak. Cousins, second, third, fourth cousins, something like that could be seen like this. So Saul comes searching for David, and the Ziphites are giving away his every location as Saul is hotly pursuing him. So he starts to run, and they say, well, he went over there, and Saul chases him over there, and they keep, telling, they, keep, they keep their eye out. They keep helping Saul out, and Saul is almost to catch David, and as he was closing in, he receives word that the Philistines are attacking the nation. And so he has to stop pursuing David to protect the rest of the kingdom, and this is God's providential deliverance of David, and that's the setting In this setting of those circumstances, I see this entire psalm as a prayer. It's a prayer put to song. And so this is how I see it as we work through this. I hope to show this out. And this prayer has three parts, plea, proclamation, and promise. My father would be very proud. It's alliterated. Rarely do you get it, but here you go. Plea, proclamation, and promise. (laughs) So the first thing we see in verses 1 through 3 is David's plea. In verses 1 through 3, David's plea, and the first thing he asks for as he pleads with God, Oh God, he cries out to God, he prays to God, Oh God, save me by your name. He asks for salvation. He asks for salvation. What immediately came to my mind is, wasn't David promised the throne? Hadn't Samuel anointed him? Didn't Jonathan just confirm it again? He's going to be king. Saul's not going to get you. This isn't going to work out. And if all those things are true, and they are, why doesn't David just assume the delivering salvation hand of God? Why pray if you already have the promise? Do you know the answer? If God has promised you something, why ask for it? He's promised. If God has promised, will he not give it? Will God not follow through on his promises every time? You seem like you're not sure about that one. I mean, this, is a, this is a basic one. Will God not keep his promises every time? Okay, good. And if God has promised you something, then why are you asking for it? Does it sound to you like you told your kids you're going to get ice cream Friday night? It's Monday. After dinner, Friday night, you're going to get ice cream. Some of you are shaking your head. No parent would ever do this, okay? But this is so it's an illustration. And so Tuesday, the kid says, am I going to get ice cream Friday night? Yes. And then on Wednesday, will, I, will you please give me ice cream on Friday night? Yes. On Thursday, can I please have ice cream on Friday? I already told you you're going to get it on Friday night. Why do you keep asking? Then on Friday night after dinner, are you going to give me ice cream? Yes. You say, I've promised. Why do you keep asking? Quit asking. I've already promised. That's not this, but I wonder if that's kind of how we sometimes think of it. But I don't even think we think of it like that because we... We just see the the plea and we don't understand the promise. Here David prays by pleading God's promises back to him. If you don't see God's promise in the background of this psalm, then you won't understand David's prayer life here. Pleading God's promises back to him is a healthy practice for every one of us in prayer. Pleading God's promises back to him. So William Plummer says this, the certainty of future events does not render useless prayer or other means for bringing them about. 
The certainty of future events does not render useless prayer or other means for bringing them about. Do you ever pray, your kingdom come, your will be done? Is that because if you don't pray that, God's kingdom will not come? Or God's will will not be done? Or do we pray God's promises back to him knowing that his kingdom will come and we pray for his kingdom to come and we pray his will to be done because it will be done and the means of prayer is a part of what God is doing. So God ordains the means as well as the ends. He's promised the ends and prayer is a part of the means of bringing those ends about. If God promised the salvation and then we are under attack, couldn't prayer be the means of the salvation from that very attack? God has promised to make you king. And now another king is chasing you, the king who's on the throne now. And you pray back to God, God, save me. You promised to make me king. Please save me. I trust your promise. And that prayer is a part of the deliverance. It's the means to the ends. By what way will God deliver David? One thing we know, he will deliver through prayer. That's connected to it. So David asks for rescue. But he asks, asks, asks for rescue on what basis? On the basis of God's name. On the basis of God's name. God's name is talking about God's character, his attributes, his reputation. When you say Yahweh, what does that mean? What, what do you refer to? So if I say Ron Vaughn, all of you get in your mind who Ron Vaughn is. You know who he is. You know what he's like. You can imagine things he said, things he's done. You can see him. And then you quickly try to move that vision away as fast as possible. Others of you are here today. You're like, Ron Vaughn? I don't know Ron Vaughn. So today, you have an assignment. He's here. you got to find him. You know, where's Waldo? Where's Ron? And uh, find him. If you know him well, you'd call him Butch. You'd say, who's Ron Vaughn? I don't even know Ron. I know Butch Vaughn. But, so that's who Ron Vaughn, his name, and even his nickname, and the connections for that, bring things to mind. This is the name of the Lord, his reputation, his character, his attributes. The name of God stands for what God is like and who God is. His name is one of the ways he reveals himself, and we connect all that he says about himself to his name. So he asks for salvation by the name of God, by your name, because God is the God who saves. God is the God who keeps his promises. God is a faithful God. He's a delivering God. When I ask God to save me by your name, I'm bringing all of those thoughts back to mind. We'll see that more specifically in a minute. So he asks for salvation. Secondly, he asks for vindication. And vindicate me by your might. Save me and vindicate me. You cannot ask God to save you when you are living in sin. When you are actively disobedient, you cannot ask for God to save you. Salvation is based upon the fact that you deserve vindication. You deserve rescue. So you cannot be actively disobedient, actively living in sin, and then cry out to God to deliver you from the consequences of those sins while staying in it. Repent and then ask for mercy. Or as you repent, ask for mercy. But you can't say, I'm going to keep disobeying you or not doing what you told me to do, and then I'm going to keep asking you to rescue me. Isn't that what the world does? All kinds of sin, all kinds of problems. And then, what do they want? They, they come to God for rescue because they know God hears and answers prayer. And so they put themselves in a bind. They don't repent, but they just want out of the situation. This is not David. He asks for vindication. This is a cry based on justice. And justice will come from God's great strength. Is David God's chosen king? Notice the situation we have a usurper to the throne, 
And the already anointed king of Israel is trying to get rid of the treasonous usurper. Who's in the right? Who's justified in their actions? Is it the usurper or the current king? Well, if God's in charge, how will you find out? Because the one who rightly gets the throne will be the one who's on the Lord's side. So vindicate me through delivering me because I'm in the right is what David is saying. You guys weren't sure. No one answered the question, did you? He's like, it's all quiet today. David is in the right. He is unjustly pursued by King Saul. He is unjustly betrayed by the Ziphites. If he was in the wrong, then justice would be what? If David was in the wrong and he wants God to vindicate him, God would not vindicate him if he was in sin. What would God do? What's the just penalty for treason? Death. Death is. Notice this is something David himself recognized in 1 Samuel 20, verse 8. 1 Samuel 20, verse 8. So Saul is after David. Jonathan didn't think he was. David says, yes, he is. And then they finally, Jonathan really figured out it was happening. And this is what David says to Jonathan, 1 Samuel 20, verse 8. So we're talking about 1 Samuel 23, three chapters earlier. This is what we find. David says to Jonathan, um, therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. David, oh man, Jonathan and David have made a covenant. Now notice what David says here. But if there is guilt in me, Kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? If David is in the wrong, what is he saying? If, I have, if I've been wrong here, if I'm, treason, if I'm in the wrong, should David be hidden by Jonathan? No, he should be killed by John, John, take my. Don't let your father put me to death. If I've done something wrong, you kill me now. So when David here prays, Lord, vindicate me, he's saying, Lord, vindicate me. I am not in the wrong. I have not done anything wrong. I am doing what is right. I'm the one who's just, and King Saul is unjust and wicked in his pursuit of David. And in delivering David, he vindicates David that David is in the right and King Saul is in the wrong. Matthew Henry says, David has no other, other plea to depend upon than God's name. No other power to depend upon than God's strength and those he makes his refuge and confidence. No other plea than God's name, no other power than God's strength, and these are his refuge and confidence. God must save and God alone. His only hope is God, and that's why he prays. He recognizes it and he cries out to God. And then in verse two, he asks for God to hear him. His third request, oh God, hear my prayer. Give ears to the word, give ear to the words of my mouth. Why ask God to hear? Isn't David convinced that God hears and answers his prayer? Aren't you convinced that when you pray, God hears and answers your prayers? Are you convinced of that? Do you think David might know that maybe even a little bit better than you do or have, have more personal experience of that? If God always hears and answers our prayer, why would we ever ask God to hear and answer our prayers? I mean, why would we sing this in worship? Oh, God, hear us. Answer our prayers. Well, we already know that's true. You should already have a bell ringing in your head because I've already kind of answered this earlier with the idea of save me, deliver me, if he's already been promised to be king. Now, here's what I think is happening here. 
David realizes that God's hearing is vital, and he doesn't presume that God will hear in a way that leads to a positive response. Just because God hears our prayer and hears what we ask for doesn't mean he's going to give us what we ask for in the way that we ask for it. So when he says, hear me, may your ears be open to my words, he's saying that, hear me in the way of bringing the thing I'm asking for. Give me what I'm asking for. Respond to my words in a positive response of saying yes to my prayer, not no or wait. So he's asking for God to positively respond, and he realizes if God doesn't hear, nothing else matters. If God doesn't hear and answer, David has no hope. We must understand that the reason we pray is because God is our only hope. And we realize in prayer, if God doesn't hear us, if he were to turn away from us, if he were to shut his ears to our cries, then we would have no hope. And that's why it would be good for us to pray this very same thing. Lord, hear us. Lord, answer us. Be open to our cry. So this is a prayer we can pray, even though we have the promise that God always hears, because we want God to answer The reason he's praying this, verse 3, is because ruthless strangers are trying to kill him. They are seeking his life. So even though these Ziphites are of the tribe of, of Judah, they appear to be strangers. They don't know David personally. Yet, even though they don't know him personally and they have no personal reason to want his demise, they have made themselves his enemies. They don't know why Saul is pursuing, yet they are willing and eager to turn him over. Why? I believe the answer is given at the end of verse 3. They do not set God before themselves. It's one reason given. Strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. I don't think it's just a list of things that are true about these guys. I believe the third thing about these guys is giving us an indication of why they're doing what they're doing. They are not seeking to obey God. They are not seeking to please God. They don't set God before their eyes. And the result of not setting God before your eyes is that you live and please yourself. It is an example of the practical atheism of of Psalm 53, verse 1. We saw this last week. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. These wicked men have not set God before themselves. They have God. God is not in the picture. They don't see God. They don't think about God. They don't take God into account. They don't take his word into account. They're doing what they want to do for themselves and themselves alone. They don't care about justice. They don't care about whether Saul is right or David is right. They do not care. They have no God before their eyes. And when that is true, then you have no concern with divine accountability. Divine accountability is connected. If you do not think there's any God or there's no God you'll give an account for, then you will just live your life for yourself, for whatever you want, only worried about consequences here and now, if there is no God. But if there is a God, then there is a God that one day you will stand before his throne and you will give an account for every word, every thought, every deed, and you will be judged by that almighty God. And he will judge you for your violations of his law. He will judge you for your rebellion against him. He will judge you for your sin. And the only way to escape the judgment of of rebellion the judgment of wickedness, the judgment of sin that will lead to your eternal punishment in hell, the only way to escape that judgment is the Lord Jesus Christ. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, shed on the cross in the place of all those who will trust in him. That is your only hope, so turn to him, cry out to him. It's the hope we're going to talk about and think about at the end of our service with the Lord's table. 
we will gather around the table remembering our salvation, our only hope, the blood shed for us, the body given for us. Christ died, and that is our only hope. And therefore, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we will stand there dressed in the robes of Christ's righteousness, not our own, because all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And if we were to stand before the throne of God in our righteousness, we would have nothing but sin and wickedness. But we stand in Christ's righteousness, we stand in that sanctifying power, and we stand there with the good deeds that we have done for the Lord Jesus Christ. Totally different because we've set God before our eyes. We recognize our accountability to our maker, our accountability to the one true God. Now, if they have not set God before their eyes and they're living for themselves, then why would they turn David in? What do you think? Pretty simple, isn't it? There's a guy who's king, and there's a guy who wants to be king. And so who do I please? Would you not turn someone in to ingratiate yourself with the current ruler? Would you not seek some maybe financial uh, help? Maybe you'd seek some uh, to get a... a uh, some, the, the king would owe you something. He would get in good with the king. So that's the idea is we want to please the king because the king will do something for us. We're not cared about justice or righteousness. And so they're just trying to get in good with the current king to gain favor. Now, does that still happen today? Do people seek to please rulers, even wicked rulers, by turning on God's people and righteous people, even who are doing good? Do good people get ratted out by bad people? I saw a, a meme, and I wish I, I don't put stuff on the screen like this, but it was a picture of someone uh, bound and gagged at, at, at the fire. You know, how they, they lit the Christians on fire, and the person was lighting on fire, and they said to them, just so you know, I agree with you, as they lit the fire. Are there people who might be sympathetic to us, who might even agree with us, who will be the ones who turn on us, the ones who turn us in, the ones who are seeking favor with the king. This, this is a current situation, which is why I ask you, do you have any enemies? Is anyone angry with you because of your stand for Christ, the cause of Christ? I would say this. This would be somewhat controversial, but maybe not as controversial as it would have been a couple years ago because I think we understand it better. If our church has no enemies, we're not making a strong enough stand. And we don't have people who are angry with us. We're not saying it clearly enough. So um, here's an illustration for you. All right, so we put things on the sign, if anybody noticed. Um, sometimes people like what we put on the sign. Sometimes people don't like what we put on the sign. And uh, sometimes people in the church don't like what we put on the sign. Uh, tell me we should change the sign. But, uh, but pray for Becky. And uh, so pray for that. Um, but we just... Uh, Tom, Tom Weir, so I'm going to put Tom out there because there's no other way to talk about this. Tom Weir, he, he's been so gracious. I come up with, with what goes on the sign, and then Tom graciously puts it out there. So this week, he's out there putting on the sign. Do you see what was on the sign this week as you came in? Do you see it? No, because you guys don't pay attention, but other people seem to pay attention. In fact, I got a phone call on one of my signs a couple weeks ago, the one Becky likes so much. Um, so, <laughs> so it says, uh, God is our only help. God is our only sustainer, I think, something like that. That's what it says. So Tom is out there by the sign, and a person driving by says, good job on the sign. And Tom's like, oh, yeah, it's a good one. 
And then as they turn the corner, they start using every foul name and foul word to curse him out as they drive away. So just so you know, in case you didn't know, our church has one enemy. <laughs> I guess it's connected to the sign. So I don't say that to make light of the situation. I say that because if we stand for the truth and we stand clearly in a, 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 a situation, a land that is going down the tubes in paganism and rebellion against God and all those things, if we are just to simply stand strong and speak the truth in love, we will be hated for speaking the truth in love. We're not hated because we put anything hateful on the sign or, or, or nasty on the sign. We're, we're, not, we're not like that. We're going to speak the truth. We're going to speak it clearly and firmly. We're going to speak it in love because we love people and want to see them saved. But we will be hated for it, and they will be our enemies. And so just so you know, in case you didn't know, if you tell people you're from Calvary Baptist Church, there's at least one person out there who will not say nice things to you, and maybe a lot of others. So that is important. Sometimes you are known by the enemies you have. You're known by your friends, and you're known by your enemies. And so we should think about the implications of this, and, and we see this in Psalm 54. So he cries out to God. Interesting. What kind of man is David? He's a man after God's own heart. Has he done anything to deserve Saul's coming after him? No. Has he tried to take the throne? No. Has he tried to get rid of Saul? No. In fact, just a few chapters after this, he has an opportunity to kill Saul, and he chooses not to take it. He will not touch the Lord's anointed. He's done nothing wrong. God chose him to be king. That's God's choice. God put him in the crosshairs. His life hangs in the balance because of God's actions, God's will, God's choice. Have you been there? This is nothing that David has done wrong, and yet, in this time, he's got enemies about how should he respond? How about us? Now think about this. When it is God's choice, God's actions, God's will that bring enemies, that bring resistance, that bring people out to hurt us or kill us, William Plummer says this, Whatever makes us feel our entire dependence upon God is good for us. I have to quote him because if I say that, you will like, not like me, so I'll quote someone else. Whatever makes us feel our entire dependence upon God is good for us. And all God's people said, don't say it unless you mean it. Amen. Yeah, I'm trying to squeeze, yeah, squeeze it out of you. It may just say, something, oh, yeah, whatever makes me feel my utter dependence upon God is good for me. I know that theologically, I know that scripturally, but man, you know how upset I am today or this week or yesterday over this, these things that God has brought into my life? My utter dependence, and I'm so upset because we don't have the right view. David understands that even though he's done nothing wrong, he prays for vindication, it is God's choice, God's will that has brought these enemies into his life. People are trying to kill him for what God has done. God anointed him. God chose him to be king. And so he cries out to God for salvation because God's his only hope. Secondly, we see David's proclamation, verses 4 and 5. In his prayer, he asks, and in his prayer, he proclaims. And in the middle of his prayer, he says, behold, stop, look. David declares what he knows to be true. He declares what he believes. He responds to his own request by praying the truth. And in praying the truth to God, is he telling God something God didn't know? No, he's praying something to God that he needs to be reminded of and reminds himself as he prays it to God. So we're still praying here. He didn't stop praying here. Behold, he prays and says, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. 
This is a tremendous, tremendous means of comfort and encouragement. He preaches to himself the truth in prayer. And if you don't learn to practice this, you will greatly struggle with encouragement and comfort in the hardest times. If you don't learn to pray the truth of who God is and what God does, his promises, his blessings, back to him in prayer. Because in praying these things to God, you are praying words of faith. He is the one who delivers. You are the God who saves. You are the God who who rescues. You are the God who sustains. I trust in you. And that is important because it's your words of faith being cried out to God. And that will comfort and encourage your own soul. Pray the truth of who God is and what God does back to him in prayer, and you will find great encouragement in your soul. What does he say? He says, God is his helper. Don't you love these difficult outlines? Probably couldn't have guessed that one at all. God is his helper. So who else can he turn to? The reason he prays to God for salvation is because God is his helper, his only helper. God is the sustainer of his life. The Lord is the upholder of my life. If God were to let me go, if God were to take his protection away, I would die. God is the sustainer. The famous quote by George Whitfield says this, we are all immortal until our work is done. We are all immortal until our work is done. Why can you walk into the fiery furnace? Why can you preach the gospel to the angry mob? Why can you stand before Pontius Pilate? Why can you do these terrifying things, these deadly things, these risky things? How can you do them with confidence and trust? Because you are immortal until your work on earth is done. And so I forget who it was. Was it um, the missionary to the Aka Indians? Not Nate Saint, but the, the other guy. Jim Elliott, I think he said, there's no safer place to be than in the center of the will of God, something like that. No safer place to be than wherever God puts you, no matter how dangerous, if this is where God puts you, you will not be killed until God is done with you there. And so what's safer, here in America, in the safety of Owasso, or in the middle of Iran preaching the gospel on the streets with a bullhorn? What's safer? Depends on where God wants you. And if he wants you there and calls you there and gives you the mission to go there and do that there in that dangerous place, he can protect your life no matter what. And you can die of a heart attack tomorrow, today, this instant, no matter where you are. God puts you where he, is, where he wants you. You are immortal. He's the sustainer of your life. And if you don't realize that, then you will become the person that you are trusting in to protect yourself. And that's a dangerous place to be, self-protection. Second, thirdly, God is the avenger. God is the avenger. Verse five, he will return the evil to my enemies. God is the avenger. Notice, David does not take vengeance on the Ziphites. He does not take vengeance on King Saul. He does not lift his hand against these enemies. God is the one who will return the evil to my enemies. He knows this because he also knows Psalm 716. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. God will turn the mischief of my enemies, he'll turn the mischief of the wicked back on his head. Give God room. Give God room. We'll get to that verse in a minute. Also, he knows it from Deuteronomy 32, verses 35 and 36. What has God said? Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamities at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people. Remember what? David had asked for, vindicate me. The Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. 
Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Who said that? Moses. Who also said that? Paul. Paul said that. Romans 12, verse 19. Behold, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written. Where is it written? Deuteronomy 32. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. In the old covenant, in the new covenant, God is the avenger. He's the one who repays. You don't have to take vengeance on your enemies. Notice the difference between self-defense and vengeance. Notice the difference between David killing his enemies in battle and David choosing not to take vengeance on his enemies here. You have to know the difference. David clearly does. And so God will avenge himself. Notice then he slips in one more request in a moment of praise. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. As he again thinks about his enemies, he again takes the opportunity to pray one more time. A request. He's still praying, but a request one more time. He asks God to put an end to them. What does that mean? And should we pray that? <laughs> Got one amen. God's faithfulness to his people demands that he destroys their enemies. If God is faithful to his people, what must he do to their enemies? If he's going to protect David, what must he do? Destroy the enemy. He must put an end to those who seek David's life. He must either kill them or move them out of the way. Now here he doesn't kill King Saul. He removes him by bringing another enemy into the land and Saul departs. But David is asking God to end their lives, put an end to them, put an end to my enemies. And if God is faithful to his promise to protect his people, there are times he can move the enemies, he can change the enemies, he can move you, he can do all kinds of things, but there are times when to protect his people, he must destroy the enemies of his people. And if he wouldn't destroy them, he would be unfaithful to his promise. So God does kill his enemies. God kills the enemies of his people over and over and over by the hundreds of thousands sometimes. And if we don't understand what that means in the Bible, we won't understand this. And so can we pray, Lord, put an end to my enemies? If we allow God room for vengeance, and we realize that vengeance is his, and that he will repay, and we give God room to work, then he can destroy our enemies, and we can actually pray this, Lord, put an end to my enemies. Kill the wicked. Kill your enemies. Now, what would we, what would we rather have, their death or their repentance? Their repentance. We allow time for God to work, for God to have vengeance, because that also gives us time to preach the gospel. It gives time for God to save their soul and bring them to repentance, because at one time, what were all of us? The enemies of God. And if God only killed his enemies, we wouldn't be saved. And so all of us were enemies of God who were rescued and through repentance. And so we pray for repentance, but we also pray that if God does not bring our enemies to repentance, that he would remove them from this world. Charles Spurgeon ends this segment by saying, the vigor of faith is the death of anxiety and the birth of security. The vigor of faith is the death of anxiety and the birth of security. Are you anxious? Strengthen your faith by praying the promises of God and the, and the presence of God back to him. Are you secure in God? It's because your faith has demonstrated security. That's what we do. The vigor of faith is the death of anxiety and the birth of security. Last thing we pray, the last thing David prayed, David's promise. This is David's promise. So if you put the entire song together, it means that David has written this song before deliverance came. We know the deliverance because we know 1 Samuel 23. 
But it appears that David is asking for deliverance, so you can't ask for deliverance after it is done. So this is a song we sing when we need deliverance. We sing all of this song when we need deliverance from our enemies. And there's therefore no legitimate cry of David. There's no urgency in this song if he's already had the deliverance and he's seen the deliverance. So we get to the end of this song and deliverance is there. Verse 7, for he has delivered me. My eye has looked in triumph. So either David wrote this song before deliverance and this song is written in crying out to God for deliverance and then what do we do with verse 7? Or he wrote the entire song after the whole thing happened and then what do you do with the first five verses? I believe he wrote this song before deliverance happened, which means he makes a promise and he writes this song and he promises something and he promises it in faith. So as he prays for deliverance and as he proclaims who God is and what God will do, he then also promises something in faith. He commits, first of all, to giving a free will sacrifice. I will sacrifice to you a free will offering. He also commits to giving thanks. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. The name of Yahweh, all caps, L-O-R-D there, the name of Yahweh is good. He was saved by the name of Yahweh, so he praises the name of Yahweh. Remember, save me by your name, verse 1. I will give thanks to your name. Lord, save me by, by who you are, by your character, by your attributes, by all that your name represents, and then I will praise your name. I praise the God who saves. And then notice what he commits in faith. Or notice that he commits these things in faith. He commits to do these things in verse 6, in faith, verse 7. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. David commits these things in verse 6 because he is absolutely confident that God will deliver him, verse 7. He is so confident that he puts his deliverance in the past tense. He has. He has. It hasn't happened but he knows it will, and it has. Are you praying in confidence? Are you praying in faith? Are you trusting in the Lord? Or are you doubting? James talks about the man who prays and doubts. Are you praying in confident faith that God will deliver? This is all the parts of prayer. If you're not a Christian here today, you need to stop ignoring God and trust in Jesus Christ for the gift of new life. Stop ignoring him. You will give an account to him. You will stand before him. Don't ignore him. And trust in Christ for the gift of new life. And as a Christian, learn to plead with God for help in faith. Learn to plead to God. Learn to plead with God for help in faith. Are you trusting the Lord to deliver? Plead with him. Proclaim who he is. And do it in faith. Father, help us today to do these things. Teach us to pray. Teach us to pray as David prayed. May we learn these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ask our deacons to come as we gather around the table. We're going to end our service today with the Lord's Supper. Jason. Has God saved your soul? Has he delivered you from sin? Has he taken you, an enemy, and turned you into his child?
Has he adopted you into his family? Is he caring for you as a father does his children, a loving, kind, generous, merciful, gracious father? Are you thankful for your salvation today? Oh, to be a child of God rather than an enemy of God. One of my favorite lines is in this, one of the new songs that we've sung. It's not so new anymore, but once his enemies, now seated at his table. Once his enemies, now seated at his table. So we gather around the Lord's table as redeemed children, adopted children, saved, born again through the blood of Christ, and we gather to remember, and we gather to reflect. So we want to take a time for you to prepare yourself. We don't want to go through this time flippantly or haphazardly. We want to think and focus and be reminded of these things together.